Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. As rates have fallen over the last decade, Australian retail investors have pursued returns in equities and property, but they've generally ignored credit markets for a whole host of reasons. As both equity and property valuations have become stretched and rates have fallen further, we're starting to get a lot more interest in credit, particularly from retirees, but it's not a well understood sector for many investors. Today I'm joined by one of Australia's most prolific commentators on credit, Chris Joy of Coolabar Capital, to talk about how to generate meaningful returns, and I do mean meaningful, from fixed income. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So Chris, fixed income is generally ignored, harsh, but it's relatively true by Australian retail investors. Why do you think that is? <clears throat> I think it's a, an accessibility issue primarily. Um, it's actually very hard to get access to over-the-counter bonds. And so, as you know, you, see, you, you tend to see uh, very polarised portfolios um, between uh, residential property, cash, and direct equities. And so bonds are traded in the OTC market. Uh, the unlisted. Do you want to explain OTC yeah. for us? <laughs> so they're traded in the unlisted over-the-counter market. And normally the minimum investment size is half a million dollars. And so that lack of divisibility um, and the difficulty that retail punters have accessing that market, um, which is also very dark and opaque, which means you can't see what's trading. So, you know, I've probably bought and sold eight to nine billion dollars worth of bonds in the last 12 months, and nobody knows those prices except for me. Um, so I think it's access. But I think equally, groups like NAB um, and others are doing a brilliant job in democratising debt capital markets and providing solutions. Um, you know, one natural conduit is obviously the hybrid market, where hybrids in a capital structure uh, sit above shares, but below what are called subordinated bonds, and they have elements of debt and equity. Um, and I think there's a role for those securities and portfolios. I think the challenge for folks who are listening to the podcast is to try and think beyond that cash equity polarization. And the way I like to put it is this, that you often own bank stocks, that's the equity of the shares, and you own bank deposits. But your bank, your typical major bank is funded with 60% deposits and um, 30 to 35% through bonds and hybrids, and the rest via equity. I mean, those numbers vary bank by bank. Um, and a lot of SMSFs and a lot of retail investors, um, to a lesser extent financial advisors, uh, are really stuck at the bottom of the capital stack and at the top. So deposits are at the top, equities are at the bottom. And there are <coughs> tremendous interest rates and tremendous returns from securities sitting in between. So if you bought a major bank's senior uh, bond, the legal default risk on that security is the same as a bank deposit. So if CBA defaults on their deposit, that is for some reason it doesn't, they don't repay the interest on that, that um, savings account, 
they're in default under the senior bond and vice versa. The recovery rates will be slightly different, but you know, hopefully quite similar uh, insofar as if the bank goes bust and it's put into liquidation. You'd like to think that depositors and senior bondholders would recover uh, their principal. Uh, I think the last time an Australian bank imposed losses on depositors was like 1931. I probably got that date wrong. Yeah, well. Yeah, mm. the primary producers bank. But that, that's the challenge for your listeners, to get access to that broader suite of solutions. So you talk about meaningful returns in that in that range that, as you say, very few retail investors have access to. So what are you talking about in terms of that range? Yeah, so this would be surprising, I think, to your listeners. Um, and you can look at this several different ways. You can look at the returns that are currently available, um, so the interest rates on different securities. You can look at um, the returns that have uh, been provided by the market over the last 12 months, and then you can look at the returns that active managers like ourselves produce. So starting, um, I guess, with the sexiest part, which would be the stuff we do. You know, we run 14 portfolios for mainly insta investors. Um, And in the last 12 months, you know, one of our portfolios, our active composite bond strategy, which is not available to retail investors, uh, has returned 14.3%. And that's benchmarked against the main bond benchmark in Australia, uh, the Composite Bond Index, and that did about 10 point something percent. So we outperformed that index by about uh, 400 basis points. But the average credit rating um, in our portfolio and in the index is about double A. So it's very, very low risk stuff uh, with high returns. We have other strategies we run for super funds um, that invest across a broader range of debt and hybrid securities that in the last 12 months have returned 10.9%. Um, right down to cash plus products that are available to retail investors that in the year to July our active cash strategy I think returned up to 3.2% net of fees and that's targeting uh, a return above the RBA cash rate of 1-2% to um, which, it, which it did uh, deliver and then we have another cash plus style solution called smarter money higher income that did uh, up to 3.6% net of fees um, so that gives you a good sense of the range of the spectrum um, if you look at current interest rates, just off the top of my head, um, you know, senior bonds, you're going to be earning close to 2% on right now. These are from the major banks or other banks. Um, subordinated bonds, you're going to be earning uh, closer to 3% on right now. And uh, bank hybrids, you should be able to get uh, around 4% with franking. Um, so... You know, on a, a TD, you're looking at kind of one and a half to two, a senior bond, two, um, sub-debt from the same bank from CBA or NAB or any of the majors, uh, three, hybrids, four, four to five. And then if you actively manage that portfolio and you have a lot of skill, then um, you can uh, potentially generate higher returns. So, Chris, you kind of answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So many self-managed super fund trustees in particular, and the reason we talk about them so much is we've got excellent data on what they hold. Everyone puts in a return every year, we see what they have. But other investors, very similar kinds of portfolios, they seem to hold cash and term deposits as a proxy for other types of fixed income products. One of the arguments for that when we talk to retail investors is they've got a bank guarantee Oh, they've got a government guarantee really over those deposits up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
familiarity and access is obviously another one of the arguments. But the concept of capital protection is so important to people. Do you think that's an adequate compensation for the potential loss of increased returns? You talk about those different returns that are available up the stack or in different types of products. Do you think it's adequate compensation? Um, yeah, actually, I think you know, TDs in Australia offer tremendous value okay. uh, for their risk. Um, so they offer tremendous value for their risk because they're basically risk-free. Mm. Are they providing currently sufficient return um, for an investor's goals? That's a different question. Um, clearly not, because you know, inflation's running at you know one and a half to two. Your cash is only going to um, you know provide you with a similar return, so you're not going to get any real return after inflation. <clears throat> So that's why you really need, I think, in a diversified portfolio to try and span the full capital stack. So you ideally would want some deposits, some senior bonds, some subordinated bonds, hybrids and equity. Um, And I think that you can get really good returns on a risk-adjusted basis at various points in the cycle from different parts of that capital stack. Um, so it's kind of funny that you can buy Telstra shares really easily through NAB Trade or Comsec, but um, it's hard for a retail punter or an SMSF to buy Telstra bonds. Mm. And you know it's the same company, same <clears throat> inherent risk. Obviously the securities have very, very different risk, um, but I think the opportunity for retail is to tap into different parts of the capital stack at different points in time um, and capture those really high risk-adjusted returns. So what do I mean by you know, risk adjustment? And I guess we need to think through what do we mean about risk? We're really talking about the probability of loss, so capital loss. and one measure of that is volatility, which is return volatility, which refers to the amount that you know, the returns on an investment move up and down by. So you know, cash basically has no vol. Um, bank hybrids you know, over the last few years have had about 2% uh, annualized return volatility. Um, senior bonds and subordinated bonds around 0.5 to 1% annual return volatility. Uh, Bank equities, interestingly, by way of contrast, have been running historically at about 20% annual return volatility. So, you know, last year in equities, there were various points in time where you could have been down 20%, whereas, um, you know, your worst case scenario probably in the hybrid market was um, if you were diversified across a broad portfolio of securities, a negative one or two percent return. Um, but the overall hub, whilst we've done, as I mentioned, up to eleven percent franked in our portfolios, the broader hybrid market um, itself has done really well. And over the twelve months to July, has done about eight percent franked. Um, that may not have necessarily been as high as you might have got return-wise in various uh, share portfolios. 
but for what is 10% of the risk or the probability of loss, <clears throat> with that 8% return, you're capturing a lot of upside. So you're way ahead of me on my questions because one of the questions I was going to ask you is in terms of a lot of our investors are very familiar with hybrids. They're really happy holding them in a portfolio. One of the reasons is access, as you mentioned, right? So you can buy it on Nabtrade or any other broker. You hold it like an equity in your portfolio. It's very simple. It's accessible. People clearly see what they're getting there. And they're happy to wear a small amount of volatility on those. But we all see plenty of other investors holding particularly bank shares as kind of a volatile term deposit. They really do. You know, They will hold them for a decade or more where the increase or decrease in price, not be too concerned about that capital appreciation or loss because they're just there for the yield. What are your thoughts about that on, as a strategy? And probably the next question is, how many investors are exposed to a risk of those particular companies reducing their, uh, their yield or you reducing their dividends? Because that's probably the next thing. The one that we saw obviously that really hurt people was AMP which investors had held through a very, very volatile cycle, we'll call it that, um, because of the yield, they saw it as being effectively a nice income and suddenly that income's gone. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really um, <clears throat> important point that, you know, it's interesting when we come back to that capital stack. I've been very publicly negative on bank shares and bank returns. <clears throat> and bank valuations for shareholders since 2015. Mm. At the same time, I've been very positive on the opportunities in bank senior bonds, subordinated bonds, and hybrids. Um, so I think that investors should absolutely not be using bank shares as a volatile TD. That's absolute BS. Right. <laughs> Good. We'll tell people that. <clears throat> you know, you can have huge in the GFC you know, bank stocks were down 60% so I only think you should my own view is you should own bank shares if you think they're mispriced and undervalued and you think there's capital upside this is not personal financial advice but um, my own view is since 2015 there's been a lot of headwinds for bank valuations and I think they will continue for some time <clears throat> My, my perspective on this is there's going to be a great buying opportunity for Aussie banks and, and bank shares, but that probably won't be until the next recession. Um, but up the, the capital stack, there's tremendous opportunities. So before the election, I put more than $100 million into bank hybrids that were paying 3.6% above basically the cash rate bit more than that, caught um, about 3.8% above the cash rate on the presumption that um, either Scott Morrison would win or if Labor won, the Senate would block their franking proposal. And that obviously came to pass and we thought hybrids were paying too much return or too much spread in our uh, language too much credit spread above you know, the risk-free rate or the cash rate. And since the election, we've seen that hybrid spread crunch in from 380 over to about 280 over. And so we've had capital gains on top of that spread of about uh, 4% in a very short period of time. 
Um, and you can get those sorts of returns at different points in time across much safer debt securities. So actually, I mean, the listeners can't see this, but you can, Gemma. Mm. Up on this screen here right now, what I have in front of me is a chart, and it has a copy of every single trade we've ever done across our portfolios from 2012 through to today. Um, And it's a bunch of black dots. And on the y-axis is the returns on each individual trade. And and that goes from 0% through to 20% plus. And one thing you can see is this, and there's a table underneath this summarizing all the data. And there's basically um, 8,123 bond and hybrid sales. Um, And typically the credit rating on these securities has been A, which is very high. Mm. And if you have a look at this, the average interest rate we've earned over the last um, eight or so years has only been 3.4% per annum. That's not fantastic. But the average total return we've earned has been 7.6% per annum. And the way we've gone from bonds paying 3.4% to 7.6% is what we do is we revalue every bond in the market globally every day using scores of quantitative bond valuation models that adjust the securities for their risk. So we're controlling for things like the bond's credit rating, its liquidity, uh, its safety, its industry sector, and numerous other variables. And we want to find cheap bonds that are paying too much spread or too much return for their risk and we buy them like much like you buy a cheap stock. And when that spread normalizes back to our target, we get a capital gain. So as with the hybrid um, trade that I talked about, and hybrids we thought should be paying more like 2.5% of the bank bills, and they were paying 3.8% of the bank bills. So we put that 100 million in, and then the spread compressed to 2.8% above bank bills. And so we get a huge capital gain of about 4%. What's interesting though, uh, is our win ratio. If you look at on the far right hand side here is 98.7% across the 8,200 what, thereabouts exits. Um, and that means that that measures when I buy a bond or hybrid and sell it, do I make or lose money? And 99% of the time we're making money. The key point I want to express though, is even when you move into very safe security. So if I take out hybrids in this chart, so I'm gonna remove the ASX market, and I only look at over-the-counter bonds, which are higher ranking securities, so senior and sub, the returns you can see, they're they're paying only about 3.2% per annum over the last eight years, but we're still getting almost 7% per annum through about 3.7% annual capital gain. So that's, that's the opportunity I want to convey that it's not just about chasing risk. It's not just about the search for yield. <clears throat> we have nine analysts and four PMs, and if you apply a lot of skill, and if you do a lot of work and research, you can find huge mispricings. That means you can actually get massive returns with incredibly low risk from very low yielding assets. So what's really interesting about that, you talk about a win ratio of like 98%. Uh, there is no one on the planet who's got that kind of ratio in equities. Uh, but you'd I'm... expect that. So that's a really, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because... Not that I'm aware of anyway. Let's yeah, no, you're right. They're so certainly not telling anyone. They'll keep that to themselves and keep enjoying it, I think. Correct. So that's a key point. So 
if you look at really good equity investors or really good equity hedge funds, you know, they're, they're loving life if, you know, they're doing exceptionally well if they've got a, a 55 to 65% win ratio or even, you know, 70% plus. Um, but of course, I'm not trading equities. We're buying and selling securities that are sitting much higher up the capital stack, securities that have much lower volatility and much lower probability of loss. So you'd actually expect our win ratio to be higher. Yeah, you'd be quite concerned you, if you guys only had 55 or 60, right? Correct. That'd be a huge problem. There is still volatility and it's easy to lose money, <clears throat> particularly because our holding periods are actually not very long. Um, you know, one of the things at the table is you can see that the median holding period is 87 days. 87 days? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so your typical bond fund manager, like normal bond math is, I go out and I buy 300 bonds and I'm going to pay you the yield less fees. Yes. Hmm. And anyone can do that. It's super straightforward. And then they hold those bond to maturity, bonds to maturity. So they'll hold them for, you know, three to five years. And if you hold it to maturity, all you're getting is that yield. Whereas we're not doing that. We're looking for the cheap bonds that are paying too much spread. And we'll hold them for as long as they're cheap. But once they become expensive, we'll sell them. As you can see from our data, typically that takes about 90 days. Yeah, right. So three months. So one... One thing but one, to... one, sorry, just on that note, we're not getting the yield less fees. If you look at our data, we're getting, we're actually more than doubling the yield. Mm. So across, you know, this is about 13 billion worth of transactions. Um, you know, we're earning about 3.2%. We're earning t uh, in, in pure yield, but we're then adding about 4% annually in capital gain to get that, you know, 7 to 7.5% 7 total return. This is all pre-fees. Mm. It's also before franking, mm. and it's also before if we use leverage in our portfolios, it's before any leverage. Um, so that's a very different proposition. So there's two solutions in this market. You can build a passive portfolio and just get the yield, or you can try and do it actively, try and do it actively and, and get that capital appreciation. It's, so that was what I was really keen to talk about, because I think the vast majority of people you know, there's a reason why we've talked about fixed income less the boring bits, right? Because the boring bit is holding it to maturity. Pretty much everyone understands that. And they have a simple solution for that, which is term deposits, right? You know, th that's exactly Correct. what the average individual does when they're looking for a, a fixed deposit that pays them a yield. It's, you know, it's, it's not going to... It's not going to pay for the gorgeous European holiday, but it uh, but it does the job if that's what you need. Most people think about equity risk uh, in terms of the potential for capital loss. One of the things you talk about is the different types of loss or the different types of risk that you're exposed to with fixed income, which I think is really important for people to understand because then you can extrapolate to where's the opportunity set when it comes to trading. Do you mind talking about that? Yeah, so sorry, what specifically in terms of the different types of capital loss? So, you, sorry, you've talked about three different types of risk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is key. This is a, a key subject, but it's also complex. So I guess, to put it in equity terms, um, I think people understand that you know, there are safe shares and there are riskier shares. So large cap stocks generally have lower volatility than small cap stocks. And <clears throat> micro caps are gonna be really racy. And so you can kind of just build portfolios in shares that are, you know, liquid small caps. They're gonna have huge you know, swings in returns, but will also give you upside. 
And the same is true in the bond market. And in the technical jargon, we like to talk about three different types of bond risks. Um, the first is liquidity risk. So if you invest in a portfolio of loans that are literally private loans to individuals, so it might be personal loans or private mortgages or private loans to companies, small businesses. <clears throat> when you lend that money, if you make a bad decision and the business can't re cannot repay it, you're screwed. Mm. You can't get out of it, right? You're gonna lose all your money. And that's a, a form of uh, default risk or credit risk, but it's also a big form of liquidity risk. <clears throat> so when you're building bond for portfolios, if you're investing with managers who lend money through so-called direct loans, you should expect higher returns because they're taking a lot of illiquidity risk. You can also get better returns in fixed income through taking credit risk, which is basically the risk of people not repaying the loan or the bond. Um, and it's known as going down the credit curve um, into high yielding bonds or loans that basically just have high risk of default. There are lots of good, particularly global historical examples of this, but also some in Australia where people were, uh, particularly daytime television advertising of, you know, guaranteed 12% return and it's, you know, it's just a, they would I don't think they'd call it a term deposit, but it implied that that's what it was. But it would be effectively funding a, uh, a property development generally. Yeah, um, so you see a lot of this actually today. I was seeing it again. Yeah, right. mortgage trusts. Right. So, you know, there are guys out there advertising, you know, 7%, I think, um, in direct mortgage trusts, right. fund managers. Um, and they're lending to developers or they're lending basically to subprime borrowers. Mm hmm. Subprime's a very, uh, it's an emotive term, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stigma. I mean, they, don't, they call it non-conforming. Oh. Yeah. They that's don't, they that's don't... a less anxiety-inducing term, but means Correct. the same thing. Yeah, right. exactly. Mm. You nailed it. And that's actually, mortgage trusts are a great example um, because those mortgages have no liquidity. Yeah. So you put your money in to the fund, but if everyone wants to take their money out because house prices fall you know, 20%, you're going to get gated, mm. which means you can't get out. And we saw this happen in the GFC with mortgage trusts. Um, we saw it actually happen with a lot of different types of uh, funds, some managed funds that people were in where it went from you could make daily withdrawals to quarterly withdrawals to you couldn't make withdrawals at all and funds were, funds were frozen and so on. So well, we saw one actually last year, GAM, really? a global fixed income fund. Wow. That a lot of... <coughs> Aussie super funds were invested in, and that gated, it was a $10 billion fund, and they froze liquidity for 12 months. And they are investing in high yield loans. And I think that one of my criticisms of you know, the surge in <coughs> listed investment companies and trusts on the ASX is a lot of these products are investing in high yield and illiquid loans and you know, there is a risk that in a big 
um, market downturn, everyone will try and get out at the same time and you'll do so at a 50% discount or more to the value of those assets because there's no underlying liquidity. Um, so I think that you've got liquidity, li- liquidity risk, credit risk, and then the final risk factor is so-called interest rate risk. And it's hard to explain, but it's really important. Um, and the way I, I kind of would think about it is a fixed rate versus a floating rate home loan. So you take out a, a variable rate mortgage, you know what you're gonna pay. Um, it's just a you know, premium above the cash rate. And that will move up and down with the cash rate if the RBA moves it. With a fixed rate mortgage, if um, you locked in at say five or six percent a few years ago for a five year fixed term, you've basically lost money because rates have come right down and there's a huge opportunity cost. So if you'd been floating or variable, you'd be paying much less interest today. Conversely, if the RBA had lifted the cash rate, you would have made money effectively in opportunity cost or de facto terms because you would have locked in a much cheaper rate. And the same is true with bonds. So, you know, if you invested in 12 months ago, AAA rated Aussie government bonds that were only paying on average uh, about 2% interest, you actually earned a total return of 11 or 12% because <clears throat> the long-term yield that the market wants from those bonds has fallen dramatically and basically you've got a lot of capital gain. Mm. But it can work the other direction as well. If you looked at those same bonds in the year to May last year, they actually would have given you a total return that was negative. You would have lost money because long-term yields jumped up. And this is called interest rate risk or more commonly interest rate duration risk. And the problem is most of our portfolios are floating rate because our view is that no one really knows where rates are heading over the next you know, one, three or five years. And there's an enormous amount of research to say that fund managers um, can't get it right in second-guessing interest rate movements over time. It's not just fund managers. So I I talk regularly to the NAB economics guys, and they're very good and very highly regarded. Last year, they were expecting two rate increases this year, and now they're expecting at least one more cut before the end of the year. Yeah, nobody can get it right. Things have changed quite dramatically, and everyone changed their views along with the data, right? And and the truth is that the RBA itself has no idea. Mm. They have 800 analysts internally. They set set interest rates, Mm. but they've said very publicly... Um, their, f- their forecasting models can't forecast economic growth or inflation more than a year ahead. Mm. So if they have no idea where, you know, a year ago they were looking at raising rates. In the last few months they've cut rates twice. So the RBA is actually, like your economists, they're really smart and upfront. And they're very kind of straightforward in saying when it comes to forecasting, 
it's very, very hard and no one really has any idea because the world's too complex. The world's too chaotic and there's too much, there are too many known unknowns and unknown unknowns to get it right. So punting on interest rates is a fool's game. And actually, if you look over the last 10 years, 90% of active bond managers have underperformed the benchmark composite bond index because they try and second guess interest rate movements. And again, we don't do that. So we are always floating rate and um, we try and add value through valuing uh, very inefficient and mispriced credit, um, which is an understudied and opaque market, uh, very different to the interest rate market and the currency market. Those two markets are probably the two most efficient, transparent, and actively traded markets in the world. So it's really, really hard to get edge. Mm. And moreover, there's probably an enormous amount of inside information mm. in the rates and FX markets. Because you know, the Chinese are hacking everyone, the Russians are hacking everyone, the North Koreans are hacking everyone. And those guys are literally trying to get that inside information so they can, in a corrupt sense, profit from it. That's well known. So it's, it's really hard to kind of... Market prices are normally pretty accurate. So bond markets are a little bit different, and you've led in beautifully to my next question, which is you're an active investor in bond markets, which is not something that most of uh, most retail investors are terribly familiar with. Yeah. Um, always very interested in active managers in equities, but bond markets are very much outside people's sphere of uh, normal trading, as you said, because they're generally inaccessible. Can you talk about what types of inefficiencies you're trying to exploit and uh, what you look for? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. So kind of to understand us, you've got to understand what we're not. And I think what most so-called active bond managers are doing are really giving you risk for return beta parading as so-called alpha. Alpha is an improvement in return that has nothing to do with risk. So alpha is regarded as you know, return attributable to skill Beta is market return that any listener to this podcast could access just by investing in an index fund or an ETF um, that has a diversified portfolio. So normally active bond funds are going to give you lots of interest rate duration risk through long duration fixed rate bonds or lots of credit risk through high yield bonds or lots of liquidity risk through loans. We tend to focus on very low risk bonds that are paying very low yields, that don't have much credit risk, that are very liquid, so we can trade in and out of them very actively. And we're trying to identify those mispricings ex ante before the event. And what does that mean? It really means, as I mentioned earlier, bonds that are paying too much spread or return for their risk. We compare quite closely the movements in prices in our bond markets with, with the movements in prices in the equities issued by the same companies. And they're quite radically different because the equity market <coughs> is much more efficient. And so when there's an, a classic example is actually AMP. Mm. You mentioned, I think you mentioned yeah, AMP yeah. earlier. So when AMP's share price was getting absolutely smoked last year 
the bond spreads were hardly moving. It was ridiculous. And we exited all of our AMP positions the minute there was any hint of any concern um, that emerged through the Royal Commission process. I'd actually argued for years that vertical integration was dead in my AFR columns. And we basically had bugger all AMP exposure. We actually had, the only exposure we had was some, um, uh, some modest uh, exposures to AMP hybrids and similar securities. Um, <clears throat> but it, it literally took months for the, the bond market to figure out what the equity market has heard. You often hear this kind of saying, oh, bond guys are smarter than equity guys. <laughs> but they're actually talking about, they're talking about that interest rate market that we were discussing earlier. And that's an interest rate derivative market. So interest rate futures. They're talking about all the smart money globally that is trying to punt rates to second guess what central banks will do. And that is a lot of very smart money. What I'm not, I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about the folks that are trading physical bonds day in, day out. Credit, corporate bonds, and financial bonds and hybrids. And the quality of human capital in that asset class is very, very poor, mainly because <laughs> it's, it's so true. So in layperson's terms, you're saying they're not that bright. Your words. <laughs> I didn't the use those words. The quality of human capital is not that great. Excellent. So, and that's why you think you said very poor, isn't it? Quality yeah, it's very of human poor because, poor. and there's a good economic reason. Mm. Because the fees that bond fund managers charge are generally really low. Right. And there are no performance fees. So if you're a really smart investor and you want to make money investing, you go and work in equities, private equity, hedge funds. You don't go and trade long only credit because you know, you're typically charging fees of 20, 30 basis points, maybe 40 bips. Um, and yeah, we all think of Wolf of Wall Street. We seem to be doing just fine financially for a while there. Yeah, and um, but they were equity guys as well, right? Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, so, he so started were, off in bonds, didn't he? But, yeah, yeah, punting, punting shares. Um, and um, uh, so I think that yeah, that that our asset class is a very inefficient asset class. I mean, actually, it's pretty cool. I can actually show you this on the screen here. So if I I, I kind of carved out the ASX market. I go back to the ASX market and I just look at all of our ASX trades. Um, I hit update here and you'll see every single trade and all this data is dynamic. So, you know, on this particular transaction, again, the viewers can't see it, but this is all our transactions since 2012. Um, and if you just look at this one I'm highlighting here, this is like a CBA hybrid that we earned a 17.5% 7, total return on. Um, and it seems that most people would find it hard to believe you can make a 17% return on a hybrid. It, um, you know, they appreciate that, you know, if listed a dollar, you get your yield, it might move an up and down by one cent, but the idea of 17% is quite interesting. Yeah, so, well, you know, an obvious example springs to mind. So CBA PD, you know, traded down to, you know, listed at 100 bucks, it traded down to, I think, the low 80s, and then, it, you know, is now above par again. Mm. But if you look at these transactions, the average uh, credit rating is now low because we're dealing with hybrid. So the average credit rating is in the double B to triple B band. The average interest rate is 5.58% that we've earned on 4,500 exits. So we're talking about a lot of transactions over the last seven or eight years. But our average capital gain has been 10.7%. So our average total return has actually been about 16% per annum. 
Um, and the hybrid, that's much higher than what we get in the physical bond market. Mm. And that's because the hybrid market is profoundly inefficient. Um, it's really, really, um, um, you know, it's dominated by more retail investors who make more pricing errors than the OTC market. So when you talk about pricing errors, what are the principles that you're applying when you look at these? I mean, you talked about quite a range of things that you do look at. Yeah, we look at, um, it's quite, frankly, sophisticated. But we forecast the probability of a bank defaulting. We forecast what recovery rate we would get in insolvency. We look at globally where all securities are trading right now and therefore where any given security should trade given its its risk features. So the size of the security, the liquidity, the credit rating, where it sits in the capital stack. Um, and then we also do a lot of analysis on technicals. What that means is we look at the supply and the demand influences over the security. So things like, are people wanting to buy? You know, is there a new LIT coming out that uh, advisors are going to churn out of sell hybrid, so churn hybrids to sell the LI, uh, to sell the uh, hybrid to buy the LIT. Is there another major bank hybrid issue coming to market? So this year, for example, I expect an OTC major bank issue. Um, I expect a one listed issue. <coughs> when those deals come to market, you normally see dislocations, so spreads will blow wider, and that's normally a really good buying opportunity. Mm. Um, what else? Uh, regulatory change. So, <laughs> you know, we saw with the franking debate last year, I mean, hybrids got smoked, spreads blew 100 basis points wider. That was a big buying opportunity if you did your homework. Mm. A lot of really smart investors and a lot of really smart financial advisors and a lot of really smart fund managers were telling people to get out of hybrids. Mm. Dump your hybrids because you're going to lose your franking credits. Well, we did our due diligence and we arrived at the opposite conclusion. What was interesting about that one was the idea that you should get out early because I I was having this conversation with plenty of investors and what I learned was people have a really limited understanding of the legislative process. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I think there was a lot of scaremongering. We saw huge selling of hybrids. Yeah, I was fascinated by how many people didn't understand that this is policy proposed by the opposition. It's highly unusual to even see policy from the opposition in an election cycle uh, as early as it was. So they sort of had so much forewarning on things, but because of forewarning, they brought forward their decisions to a point where the uncertainty was really high. Yeah. People were acting as if it was a fact. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It we saw... Quite astonishing. Like, they've told you for certain, even if it's legislated, it's not going to affect you till the 1st of January 2020. Yeah. So you may as well just enjoy the yield for the next however long, yeah. unless you think they're going to get sold off heavily on the 1st of January 2020. A lot happens between now and then, as it turned out. Yeah, so we saw massive selling um, between March 14, when Labor announced the policy, and May. It is interesting, because people often ask, are hybrids a liquid? And you know, there's actually good volume we typically see 40 to 50 mil trade each day. <clears throat> but during that um, period of uncertainty, daily trading volume spiked by about a third um, and spreads blew out 100 basis points. And I can't help but think that all those folks who were forced to exit at those terrible prices um, either you know, made rash decisions or got bad advice. 
It's a really interesting point. So you don't really think about sentiment driving decisions in fixing income type products, but clearly that was a great example of where it was quite seriously sentiment driven. There was nothing factual on the table that people could absolutely certainly say was going to affect prices, and yet the prices moved very, very greatly in a short period. Actually, on that note, um, one thing I see in my own uh, client base is Actually, I can't talk about my own clients. I should abstract more generally. But it is true that I think the best investors are static retail investors who are uh, longer term. So this is kind of paradoxical um, in the context of what we do because we've talked about how we're very active. But, you know, I have nine analysts, four PMs, multiple PhDs, you know, tons of engineers, physicists, mathematicians. You know, we've got up to 30 different quant evaluation models. <clears throat> Mum or dad or even a sophisticated family office. You know, um, needless to say, super fun. They're not going to have those resources. So oftentimes, I think patience and exercising the option wait, to wait is, is your best bet. And I do see the, the two smart by halves try and trade... They're, they're too too reactionary and too responsive to market noise. And there's so much noise out there. And there's not much sing, signal. And I think my best investors are those who kind of ride out that volatility and don't get spooked by, you know, a month of poor performance. It's a really interesting point to one of the questions I was going to ask you as it relates to the way you trade so actively that does clearly enhance performance quite dramatically. Are there any of the principles that you apply, things that a retail investor could use in their own portfolio, particularly if they're looking to build a fixed income portfolio for the first time? As I said, self-managed super funds have sort of a th- about a quarter of their portfolio in cash and term deposits. A lot of them are keen to move up the capital stack, as you say, um, probably not the term they'd use, but into more interesting fixed income products. They understand hybrids. They're trying to think about different types of credit opportunities. Are some of the things you talk about things that they could do aside from the multiple PhDs? Yeah, I think there are lots of um, takeaways. Um, I think trying to generate the alpha we generate. So say taking bonds, <coughs> paying 3% per annum and turning that into a 7 to 8% return, that's not what retail can do. Mm-hmm. I think the 89 days might be a challenge too. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Um, the What they can do though I think is build smart beta by which I mean get diversification. So rather than having cash and equities, even big super funds do this. Like your, your big super funds, even you know, your typical default fund has got bugger all cash and fixed income. And they've got a boatload of um, Aussie equities, global equities, property equity, infrastructure equity, <coughs> and hedge fund equity. And that's all equity. There's no real diversification. Um, so I think the opportunity for punters is to, and for, you know, from, I think the opportunity for Main Street through to actually very sophisticated investors is to build smart um, beta blocks so to get the right diversification. I mean, everything is correlated in the final analysis. If we go into World War Three, everything's going to perform poorly, including your cash deposits. But through most market conditions, you can get a lot of smart diversification and I think to build that you need to understand the asset classes a little bit better and I think this is where NAB is head and shoulders ahead you know above 
the entire market because you guys do a brilliant job on education when it comes to debt markets. <clears throat> and frankly, I've you know, encouraged all your competitors to try and emulate your efforts in that regard. But understanding the risk and return profile of shares versus hybrids versus you know, subordinated bonds versus senior bonds um, within very safe businesses like the big banks. And then moving beyond that, understanding the opportunity in things called um, asset-backed securities or uh, portfolios backed by home loans, known as, um, known as residential mortgage-backed securities. Understanding the opportunities in high yield. So global high yield through you know, a Newberger Berman or a partners group, um, understanding the opportunities in direct lines through our metrics. You, know, you guys have been, I think, involved in a lot of, a lot of those transactions. And <clears throat> you know, notwithstanding my criticisms of LICs and LITs earlier, you know, these are really smart guys you know, the, the, um, at, at all those groups, Newberger, uh, partners and metrics, and they really understand their stuff. Um, and so I think that through a combination of direct investments, ETFs, I mean, actually one of the fascinating innovations here in Australia in the last few years has been the explosion of fixed income ETFs. So we run for BetaShares, the active hybrid ETF product. And we've got, that's actually the fastest growing active ETF in Australia. We've got about 450 million in it. Yeah, wow. Um, uh, and then you, know, you can get access to senior bond ETFs, <clears throat> long duration ETFs with corporate credit in them, uh, government bond ETFs, hybrid ETFs, um, and I'm sure more and more of these products will come to market. So, you know, with a good execution platform, like a NAB trade, and with access to good education, you see, I, I think there's a lot of merit in, in seeking financial advice. Um, and I think, you know, notwithstanding the dramas we've had over the years, it's funny because I deal with a lot of financial advisors, and, you know, I'd say 95% of them are fantastic. Really smart, really well-educated, they do a great job on behalf of their clients. Um, so I think financial advisors you know, get a really, really bad rap. There's obviously a long tail um, that, that has wagged and unfortunately tarnished um, the industry. But if you don't want to go to financial advice, then access education through the likes of NAB because um, the, the content you guys produce through your Kanga News events and um, yeah, through what Mark Todd's done and what you've done, um, is just awesome and and frankly I think I mean I've been on you know Mark used to have that TV show mm. and in, in those one hour sessions <coughs> we'd normally cover the entire fixed income universe mm. um, and, and you can learn a lot from fairly concentrated exposures <coughs> and I think you can pick up the basic principles really freaking quickly like mm. it's not hard to understand okay banks fund themselves with deposits senior bonds subordinated bonds hybrids and shares that's how they fund themselves I have deposits and shares. The most complex thing you'll ever invest in is shares. There's no more volatility or uncertainty than you'll get with shares. So everything is actually, in economic terms, definitionally safer and simpler. So it's just about, you know, hybrids kind of people get worked up about the fact that they're complex. And I've certainly argued in the past that they're complex, but, you know, really with a hybrid, it pays a predetermined rate of return above a cash benchmark. 
So that's pretty straightforward, like you know, 300 over bank bills. The bank bill rate is just a, a kind of cash, it's meant to be a proxy for the RBA cash rate with a little bit of a, a credit risk premium in it for the fact that uh, um, it's, the bank bill swap rate basically represents the interest rate banks pay when they issue very short term three month paper, um, and specifically the major banks. But it normally trades you know, 10 to 20 basis points around the RBA cash rate. Um, so with a hybrid, you know, they're paying a set spread or a set premium above uh, the RBA cash rate. They come franked most of the time, so you can claim franking credits. Um, then there's a call date, which means that the bank has the option to repay the hybrid um, and often replace it with a new security. That's you know, typically at uh, year five, six or seven, that the bank has this free option to, and not an obligation to uh, repay the security. And then these days, um, most hybrids automatically convert into bank shares after 10 years. So, you know, on the one hand, after 10 years, I could end up with bank shares. On the other hand, um, you know, I'm going to get uh, a set return over a period of time. And um, there's a couple of wrinkles. One wrinkle is that bank hybrids get automatically converted into bank shares if a bank's capital ratio falls um, by, you know, these days, you know, 60, 70%. So most bank capital ratios, equity capital ratios, around 11%. The conversion ratio is around 5.125%. So that's a risk and you need to understand it. And basically, you know, in our view, that's a kind of one in, probably realistically a one in 15 to one in 20 year risk. Um, and at that point in time, you could end up with bank equity that frankly will probably be really, really cheap. As I mentioned, I, you know, I personally think the best opportunity to buy bank shares that lies in wait will be the next time we have a recession because they'll get hammered and they'll probably trade at a big discount to, to their book value. Um, so, you know, in one conversation, you can explain some of the key concepts of these securities. So folks are willing to educate themselves um, and engage with a group like NAB or whoever, but I think, you know, NAB and, and um, there's a couple of others out there are the leaders in this market, then, then I think you can build up those beta building blocks, by which I mean simply just the core components of a diversified portfolio. You make some excellent points and I think investors are so lucky these days, just the sheer volume of really high quality information out there to help people is amazing. And also access is just getting so much better on this stuff. You know, the world's changed. I often tell people, you know, when I first got interested in investing, you had to look up a stockbroker in the yellow pages. Like it was, it was not, so true. it was not the same as just logging in and placing a trade. It was not the same. It was also infinitely more expensive then, quite some time ago, than it is now. One probably last question I'm going to ask you, but I think it's really important because people have uh, long memories when it comes to stuff that really hurts them financially. And most people understand that there are areas of the bond market that offer very high returns, but that's because the risk is off the charts, uh, particularly the default risk. And maybe it was me because I watched The Smartest Guys in the Room and all of those documentaries made about, uh, about Enron and... Worldcom and all the other examples of things that blew up in the it's during the tech wreck actually not even the GFC although we quite enjoyed all the documentaries about that too um, and all the Michael Lewis books but if investors have an intuitive understanding that higher return means higher risk how do you articulate to them the difference between what you're doing and that basic principle 
I mean, it's really in the numbers, the data. Mm -hmm. So as I you know, showed you on that screen, across our last 8,200 exits, um, you know, we've only earned about 3.2%. You, know, you can tell 3.2% is not a crazy high return. However, we've generated 7 to 8% from finding the mispricings. So what I'm not doing normally, like hybrids as a percentage of our transactions, or sorry, yeah, as a percentage of our total money traded, would be a very, very small minority. Um, so most of the time we're focusing on really, really high grade, excuse me, um, really, really high grade bonds with ideally effectively no credit risk. Because the last thing I want is to find a mispriced security that I think is going to normalize in the next three months and only to discover there's some internal risk in that business that blows up. <clears throat> so we spend, the reason we have so many analysts, we spend an inordinate amount of time studying the businesses and making sure <clears throat> that um, we're not assuming risks that are likely to cruel our positioning. So for example, you know, if you looked at the typical bond manager in Australia and their portfolio, I'm guessing you're going to see a lot of European banks, probably some Chinese banks, <clears throat> definitely some South Korean and Japanese banks, um, and probably a lot of racy high yield if they're high yielding uh, fund managers from companies you've never heard of. And that's the stuff we don't touch. Mm. So we have no Chinese banks, no Japanese banks, no South Korean banks, no European banks. Um, no Deutsche. No Deutsche. <laughs> no Barclays, no UK banks. We do actually have HSBC in the portfolio. It's our only <coughs> non-Aussie bank. So, yeah, so for us, what we do is, frankly, really, really hard. You know, we're typically transacting you know, 25 to 45 times a day. You know, we've got enormous amount of technology we've built. Um, we spend millions of dollars a year, um, many millions of dollars a year on our systems and our people. Uh, and it's incredibly late, you know, human capital intensive. Um, I think the, the simpler opportunity for listeners is to focus on just getting that core diversification across all those sectors we've discussed today. Um, and I think that's a good starting point. Um, so you can chase, again, you can chase yield the easy way, which is taking more risk, which you can get through that diversification, or you can chase higher returns through skill and alpha, which is what we focus on, um, which is much, much harder. Um, and, you know, notwithstanding that returns have been fantastic over time, I would argue, um, you know, obviously because our bonds are low yielding, we can go through periods where We've found mispricings, but for whatever reason, the assets get cheaper, so spreads move wider. And on a mark-to-market basis, um, you know, performance you know may not be much above the cash rate for a period of months. And you know, people can ask the question, well, you know, what's going on? Like, you know, I was <coughs> hoping to smoke TDs or smoke um, hybrids, but but that is, I guess, the existential challenge for all active managers that. You know, notwithstanding our win ratio is really, really high, and we've got a very long proven track record through lots of um, financial credit spread cycles where we've seen spreads blow out very aggressively in, in 2011-12, more so than they, in, in so bank bond spreads blow out more in 11-12 than they did in the GFC in 08-09. 
Um, we saw another big blowout in financials in financial spreads. In 2015-16, we saw it again in the second half of 2018. Um, so notwithstanding that we've had a lot of volatility over the last seven to eight years, um, and I, I would like to think we've done a really good job, uh, the reality is we can't be right all the time. Um, and it is interesting. It's normally, I find, every single time there's been a big external shock, a big dislocation, um, in all those years I just mentioned, we... So we're very highly contrarian. So generally speaking, when everyone's selling bonds, we're buying them. When everyone's buying bonds, we're selling them. So in the second half of 2018, when credit spreads were blowing wider and everyone was negative on credit, <clears throat> very negative on you know corporate and financial bonds, uh, super funds were allocating away from credit managers. It wasn't very fashionable. We were buying stuff with our ears pinned back. Uh, we had our lowest cash weights in a long time. And we were maxing out our exposures. In 2019, we've done the exact opposite. When everyone's been buying credit spreads, have been crunching in. We've been building cash, reducing leverage and leverage portfolios, uh, and taking profits. Um, but that requires a lot of fortitude. But if you've got that fortitude and that conviction in your process, and when the world's blowing up around you, you know, whether it's Brexit, Grexit, trade wars, <laughs> and you have the faith and the conviction to stick to your process and buy the cheap assets when they become available, which I don't think many people have, frankly. Um, what I find is our best performances come after those periods, mm. right? Because you're really, uh, you're not just capturing idiosyncratic mispricings. You've got secular mispricings because markets tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? You know, when the shit hits the fan, everyone's like, oh, I don't want any equities. I don't want any credit. I just want to get back into cash. And this is why these market timers almost always, that's when they should be buying. They should have been selling at the top of the cycle. Mm. But they tend to do the exact opposite. So Chris, you've got a number of products that retail investors can access. It's probably worth noting as well, if you're listening to this and you have a self-managed super fund of a, of a fairly substantial size, uh, and you're looking at wholesale type products, that is also something you can consider. But let's assume the vast majority of people who are listening are retail investors. How can people, first of all, find out about the products that are available to them? And then also you produce so much in the way of insights and content and so on. Uh, of varying degrees of complexity. How can people follow you? Uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to plug myself. Um, so yeah, we offer three, so four retail solutions, Smart Money Active Cash, Smart Money Higher Income, which are two kind of cash plus products. Smart Money, they target sort of one to 3% above the RBA cash rate uh, in returns. We offer another product called Smart Money Long Short Credit, <clears throat> which is targeting 4 to 6% above the cash rate uh, after fees. In the last 12 months, active cash has returned up to 3.2% net, higher income up to 3.6% net, uh, long short credit up to 6.9% net of fees. And then we also run the BetaShares Active um, HBID or hybrid ETF product um, that we mentioned. Uh, those products are available on the ASX or M funds via NabTrade. Um, or um, through a financial advisor. Um, they can also come directly to our um, website, which is coolabarcapital.com. Um, and if you want to follow me, I write a weekly column in the Financial Review on Fridays. It's online on Fridays and in print on Saturdays. And then um, I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter. The Twitter handle is at C-J-O-Y-E. 
Awesome, thank you. Uh, you do cover a quite extensive range of topics and people who are interested in, um, in following you, there's plenty of uh, thought-provoking and controversial stuff, which is cool. You get conversations happening, which is exciting. Thank you. Chris Joy of Coolabuck Capital, thank you so much for joining me. As always, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Your Wealth Podcast. We always love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.